I'm not a peacekeeping son of a carpenter who was brought here to save the world. Nor am I a fat guy in a red suit delivering Christmas presents to everybody. Well, not the red suit delivering Christmas presents part. Uh, I'm just a schnook. Merry Christmas, happy place, whatever holiday you choose to celebrate, if you do choose to celebrate a holiday here. I am Sean, and this is Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 3. Thank you all for listening. And uh, yeah, this is going to be the more positive episode, because I realized the previous episode was eh, kind of on the negative side. There was a lot of negativity, and I just want to flush that down the toilet. I was about to say flush that out the window, but I don't quite know how that's possible, although it would be very interesting to try. I hope all of you have been well. And uh, something that has never happened on this podcast before, I actually got some feedback. So let me address that right now. The mention of two specific malls in the previous chapter kind of brought a couple of people to attention, such as Ryan from Minnesota, who says, and I quote, It used to be to me, a mall isn't a mall without an arcade inside it. However, the Mall of America made me forget this rule. Yes, there are duplicate stores in the Mall of America, since you can't have too many GameStops or fart-related merchandise at Hot Topic. I did see the Flickr photo set of the Jake and Elwood Blues Memorial Shopping Center before it was finally torn down. It looked like something out of Fallout. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan, for uh, your feedback there. Yeah, the, uh, if I can find that photo set you're looking for, I will put that in the online bibliography. The Jake and Elwood Blues Memorial Shopping Center, that's referring probably to Dixie Square Mall, which was in Harvey, Illinois, probably about, eh, about 15 miles south of Chicago, give or take. That was the mall where the Blues Brothers' infamous mall chase scene was filmed. It was an abandoned mall. It, was, it wasn't a successful mall. I think it opened in 1968-ish, and it didn't last terribly long, maybe 10 years. And the mall had been sitting abandoned for a year when John Landis found out about it. And it was a perfect setting for the mall chase scene. And what, what's really cool is if you get any version of Blues Brothers on DVD or Blu-ray, including the first DVD release, it comes with a documentary on the making of the movie. And you can watch Dan Aykroyd watching the stunt drivers drive the Bluesmobile through the mall, and the look on his face is just priceless. He's seeing his dream come alive. He wrote this script that involved a car chase through a mall, and he looks like he's just on top of the world. But yeah, they tore that mall down, I think, five years ago, give or take. I've driven past it a few times just out of curiosity, especially because the Blues Brothers is my favorite movie ever. And let me tell you, that was a creepy place to drive around. I didn't actually go inside. I'm not one of those urban exploration people. And uh, plus, I'd, I don't know what it's like in there. It was probably very dangerous on many levels. So I, I just drove in. Man, even during the day, it was creepy. But yeah, going on, um, I heard from my friend Jim, who's a native of my hometown of Joliet, and he had... And he has this to say about the Louis Joliet Mall. He says, McDonald's wasn't in the Louis Joliet Mall at the same time as A&W. They occupied the A&W space after A&W closed. McDonald's has closed the Louis Joliet Mall sometime in the last two years. Well, yeah, I guess so. I can't really keep track of what happened during that time since I moved away from Joliet. Wow, it's been 20 years, pretty much, <laughs> except for a few months that I crashed with my parents uh, during my job transition, but that's a story for another day. And it is kind of odd because isn't there a McDonald's right by that mall in the first place? Oh, well, I'm not going to think too hard about this, but thank you folks for your feedback and anybody else, else and anybody else who wishes to contact me as did Jim and Ryan, you can send an email to autobio at schnookpodcast.com. You can also tweet me at Schnook Podcast, and uh, that's also the Instagram address, Schnook Podcast. 
And you can also interact on the Facebook page. You can either search Facebook for Autobiography of a Schnook, or you can go directly to facebook.com slash schnookpodcast, and I will reiterate this information later on toward the end of the episode. Now, I said at the end of Chapter 2 that this chapter would be Christmas-focused, and in a nice way. Before I get into the main segments I have for you, though, I want to offer some advice that I suppose is useful not only for Christmas, but also for other holidays and perhaps even birthdays. Uh, Basically, when a gift exchange is part of the festivities, take my advice to heart. For one thing, if you're giving presents to a young tot, keep in mind that that child very well may be excited to get that present and will want to play with it, wear it, use it, whatever, right away. One thing that always puzzled me, though, is when parents would say, no, you can't play with it now, so put it away for later. Oh, come on, it's Christmas, let the kid have some fun. Think about the message you're sending. Here's a present, but you can't have it. That's what the kid's feeling. That would happen to me when I was a little kid, and I saw my brother do the same thing to my niece when she was a little kid. Either let the kid enjoy the present at the time the kid opens it, or hold off on giving the present until it's okay. Don't be a buzzkill on a happy occasion. Something else you need to keep in mind when giving a present to a child. Does it require batteries? Whether batteries are included or not, make sure you have at least two sets of good batteries. Not just the cheapo, budget, no-name, or generic batteries. Make sure they're batteries that will last. Get alkaline batteries. Heck, get lithium batteries if the toy or device or whatever can handle lithium. You can always do some research online and find out. Uh, If the toy or device can handle recyclable batteries, even better. And make sure that if you use recyclable batteries, there are at least two sets of charged recyclable batteries. That way, once the first set of batteries loses the charge, the second set is ready to go right away, eliminating the wait time to charge the batteries, and the used set can go in the charger while the child continues to enjoy the present. Don't get me wrong, I'm all about teaching kids the value of patience, but come on, it's the holidays. Let them enjoy their presents. And give yourself a break, too. If your kid is enjoying presents, that means that's less whining coming from the kid that you'll have to deal with. And by the way, going back to my whether batteries are included or not, something I can tell you right now, having uh, spent some time working in the electronics industry, batteries that do come with a device, a toy, whatever, not going to be the highest quality batteries. They're just basically starter batteries to make sure that the thing works. They're not going to last long. Kind of like the initial toner cartridge and your printer purchase the one that comes from the factory it's just a starter one it's not going to last same thing with batteries so that's what i have to say about purchasing for little kids now let's switch over to adults specifically this i got a question for you is there a man in your life a friend a cousin a boyfriend husband dad son nephew neighbor whatever who's on your shopping list and you don't know what to get him trust me cheese it snack crackers, assuming they're available where you live, that is. I know in some countries they're either not available or they're hard to find. I've yet to meet a male human being who doesn't go crazy for cheese its I know some women do as well, but trust me, get a man of any age, race, religion, or sexual orientation cheese its he'll be happy. And no, this isn't a hint for any of my loved ones listening. Believe me, they already know this tidbit and have for years. And they actually successfully tested that tidbit on me once, I might add. Oh, by the way, Sunshine Biscuits or Kellogg, the uh, makers of Cheez-It, feel free to contact me about sponsoring this podcast. But if there's someone you really want to buy something for and you truly, truly have no idea what to get that person, don't sweat it. If you really have your heart set on giving someone a heartfelt gift and just don't know what to do, even a simple gift card or perhaps a donation to that person's favorite charity or nonprofit, that'll show that you care. In the end, it's the thought that counts, and a sincere gesture, at least for someone mature enough to recognize it, will be as meaningful as a physical gift, if not meaningfuller. Hey, it's Christmas. Meaningfuller is a legitimate comparative this time of year. Oh, speaking of gifts, uh, (laughs) I kind of had to give my wife uh, a present early this year, On her wish list was a gift card to her salon where she gets uh, 
her hair done, a Lumination Salon here in Chicago. Oh, by the way, uh, Lumination Salon, you may also feel free to reach out to me about sponsoring this show. So on my way home from work, this was Monday night or was it Tuesday? Did I, I'm trying to remember. It's, I rode my bike to work. I try to ride my bike as much as possible to, to get in less bad shape than I am. No, it doesn't matter. But on my way home from work, I stopped at Lumination and said, I want to get a gift card for my wife. And the lady at the register said, okay, great. What's your wife's name? And I said, well, her name's Lisa. And she typed in a few things in the computer. She turned the, uh, the register around. She said, can I have your email address? Could you type it in for me so I can send you a receipt? And I typed in my email address. Sure enough, I got the receipt over my email, which is kind of the way I've been preferring it lately. So I don't have to worry about paper receipts. It's just there digitally on a, in the cloud and on my hard drive. So if I ever need to refer to it, it's right there. So I get the gift card and I'm happily heading home, park my bike in the garage and uh, go upstairs. And uh, Lisa says, all right, I have to ask and just please just be straight with me. She said, I just got an email notification that a gift card from Lumination was added to my account. And with all the spam and fraudulent emails that are going around this time of year, I don't know whether that's real. I don't know if I should be concerned about this. So if somebody got me a gift card, just tell me. So I had to fess up. So <laughs> there we go. I don't know why their gift card system uh, did that. Why she got the message when it was my email at my email address that I gave them. And my email does not auto forward to hers. It doesn't. I know because I set it up myself with the hosting provider that I use. I know exactly where it goes. It goes to me and nobody else. So, yeah, uh, something to keep in mind uh, that something like that could happen depending on how weird whoever the gift card merchant happens to be. Uh, I don't know whom Lumination uses for that, but that was just kind of weird. Why would you... Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I, I, I'm trying not to dwell on it. I'm just trying to be as positive as I can be. The fact is, hey, I got a Christmas present that Lisa was happy with. That's what matters to me. So coming up for you today, I have just two segments. Obviously, there will be a music for Schnooks segment that's going to be a little bit longer than normal. But before that, I'm going to talk about what I call the big present As you would expect with any little kid, Christmas was always exciting for me. Of course, I couldn't wait to get presents. What child wouldn't? But it was more than just presents. Maybe it was also the break from school, the promise of snow, mom's baked goods, the colored lights, the music, seeing family we don't get to see every day. It could have been anything. Perhaps it was the annual routine that I knew what to count on. Or quite simply, it could be that Christmas time was always pleasant for me to this day. I remember Christmas Eve always being a busy day. In the first 11 years of my life when we lived in Bourbon A, the schedule involved going to St. Rose in Kankakee for confession. We'd head over to Maternity BVM, our parish in Bourbon A, for Christmas Eve Mass. Why would we go to confession at a different church? Interestingly, that habit carried over when we moved to Joliet, confession at St. Mary Nativity and Mass at St. Pat's, our parish. My mom insists that it was because of the conflicting schedules at the churches, but I am convinced that it was because my parents didn't want to take a chance that the priest in the confessional might recognize their voices. I mean, can you blame them if that's the case? I, I wouldn't want to have to deal with funny looks from my priest if he were to know my sins. But anyway, at some point on Christmas Eve, we'd also stop by and visit with some friends my parents have known since the early 60s. Mom in particular became friendly with their elderly mother who was bedridden and paralyzed. The routine changed significantly in 1986 when we had our first Christmas in Joliet, which was 35 miles north of Bourbon A. I don't believe we actually fell into a routine until a few years later. We still did presents and mass on Christmas Eve and spent Christmas Day with relatives, either at our house or possibly altering between gathering at my Uncle Phil's house in Glen Ellen, which is about 25 miles west of Chicago, or my grandparents' house in Delavan, Wisconsin. Our eventual routine involved having dinner at Al's Steakhouse. That's the fancy restaurant in Joliet. One of those places you want to dress nicer than jeans and a t-shirt. The decor and 
well, now that I think of it, possibly the actual food you were given. Classic late 60s, early 70s vintage. It only occurred to me over the last 10 years or so that, well, Al's isn't exactly a great steakhouse. Being a city snob, when I think steakhouse, I think Shula's. I think Ruth's Chris. I think McCormick and Schmick. Morton's. Gene and Giorgetti. But Al's? Well, I'm sure they have good intentions. But when I went there for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary and I asked, do you guys have uh, Guinness on tap? The waitress told me, we don't have anything on tap, hon. But you know what? A dinner at Al's Steakhouse usually meant it was a special occasion. And I admit I love their fried shrimp. My parents were friendly with the hostess and usually were able to finagle us some primo seats right under the Christmas tree. Now that I'm an adult, and I use that term loosely, and on my own, I now have my own routine with my wife. When Lisa and I moved to Chicago, it used to be for the first several years that we'd fly out to New Jersey a few days before Christmas, go to Christmas Eve Midnight Mass at St. Anselm, our former parish in Wayside, have lunch together on Christmas Day, and then Lisa and I would rush up the turnpike to Newark International Airport, fly to O'Hare, then hightail it down Interstate 294 and Interstate 55 to my parents' house for dinner. That was always a gamble because you never know what the weather will be like, but thankfully it never proved a hindrance to our flight landing on time and all those other plans. Lately, though, our routine changed to something much less logistically stressful. My mother-in-law now flies out to us for a few days and spends Christmas here. Sometimes we'll go out for dinner on Christmas Eve, usually the Weber Grill restaurant, my favorite, or maybe we'll have a nice meal at home. I particularly remember grilling some lobster and shrimp a few years ago, and it was so good. And yeah, that's right. I fire up that charcoal grill all times of the year. The only thing that stops me is lightning or precipitation. Typically, we exchange presents, then go to Midnight Mass in St. Gertrude's, a four-block walk up the street, if the weather isn't too harsh. Midnight Mass is usually not at midnight, but they do a good job with the Mass up at St. Gertrude's. It used to be that the Midnight Masses Lisa and I would attend in New Jersey were just simply a yeah, regular Mass that happened to be at midnight. But St. Gertrude's actually makes it special, a true celebration. The first time we went to Midnight Mass there, Lisa nearly cried because it was exactly how she felt Midnight Mass should be, and how it used to be when she was a little girl. However, we learned the hard way that when they pass out candles before Mass starts, we need to respectfully say no thank you. Because, well, one year we each had a bad experience with hot wax dripping, uh, making us say, well, things that you shouldn't say in church, let's just say. I'm going to leave it at that. On Christmas Day, we drive down to Crest Hill to spend the day with my parents, my brother Scott, and his wife and his wife's sister who lives with them. Scott's daughter, Alana, usually joins us as well. Well, I say usually, but I don't remember her not being there for Christmas, but oh well. Same thing happens every year. Mom, who's been critical of my weight my whole life, pleads with everybody to partake in snacks, then cooks or orders way too much for dinner and dessert, and complains that she has too much food left over. It's also become tradition that at some point during dinner, Scott stands up from the table and accidentally bangs his head into the chandelier above the table, much to his chagrin. Um, height runs in the family via the men on my mom's side. Of course, we exchange presents after dinner. My parents, who never were rich at all, also usually give us envelopes with a generous amount of cash. I believe that was a routine started by my grandparents. They'd usually give a generous amount of money to my mom and all of her brothers, and they would all divvy it up among their respective families as they saw fit. And by grandparents, I mean most likely my grandmother, because my grandfather didn't have a thoughtful bone in his body. My grandmother, however, she was a saint. When Christmas with the parents is over, the routine lately has been to stop at a gas station nearby to fill up on usually cheaper suburban gas, then head back home to Chicago and enjoy the view of the lit skyscrapers on Lakeshore Drive on the way to our north side home, and we get comfy veg out and nosh on some leftovers or holiday snacks and watch something on TV or DVD or something. And actually, things are going to be a little bit different this year. We're going to be doing most of our festivities on Christmas Eve because my brother now lives in Ohio and he has to work the day after Christmas. So he's using Christmas to get home without having to rush and drive for six hours, basically, and then go to work. But anyway, going back to how Christmas Eve usually was for me, the big moment of Christmas Eve, of course, was presents. Traditionally, we would exchange gifts on Christmas Eve. And when I was a particularly young tyke, 
Christmas morning would start with presents from Santa. After that, we'd get ready either for family to come over or for us to go to Uncle Phil's house. My aunt and uncle, by the way, on one or two occasions told me that Santa left some presents for me at their house with a note saying he forgot to drop them off at our house. Uh, I wondered why those presents were wrapped in different paper from the presents he left at our house and why the handwriting on the labels wasn't the same as the handwriting on the labels at our house. Eh, eh, no time to worry about that. They were presents. Who cares? And there was always the big present that I really, really wanted. And by big, I don't necessarily mean size or value. It's more like the one thing that I really had my heart set on, the big present. When I was five years old, the big present was a toy called Pop-Up Pinball. Now here's a game that works like his name, Pop-Up Pinball. The flipper you flip till you pop up all six, Pop-Up Pinball. It was a small plastic pinball machine in which your goal was to make the ball go into six different holes. When the ball fell into one of those holes, a character would, well, pop up, hence the name, and a bell would ring. Make all six characters pop up and you win the game. It was actually a pretty cool game now that I think back on it. The next year, seemingly everybody cool that I knew had a remote control car. Oh, I loved those things. The problem is nobody I knew who had one would ever let me try it out. That was all I wanted for Christmas in 1980. Nothing else. So my par- <clears throat> So Santa gave me a radio-controlled Lamborghini Countach. It wasn't quite what I had in mind was probably cheap, uh, which isn't really a bad idea considering I was a clumsy six-year-old, so if I destroyed the thing, my parents wouldn't have been out a ton of money. I recently found that exact remote control car on eBay and saw a Walgreens price tag that looked like it had only one digit to the left of the decimal point. So how cheap was this car? Well, instead of a cool remote control box with a steering wheel, the remote was just a thin black thing with a red button and an antenna. The way the car worked was when you turned it on, it would constantly drive in reverse circles. If you wanted the car to drive forward, you hold down the button. So, not ideal, not the least bit realistic, but you know what? I was actually happy with it, even though it was hard to use in the house, because we didn't have much floor space to accommodate its uh, idiosyncratic paths and control. Plus, that thing went through batteries like crazy, probably because my parents would only buy the cheap Everetti and Kroger cost-cutter batteries, perpetually stored in a small brown paper sack in a drawer in a kitchen cabinet. The word alkaline was foreign in our house. But still, I had a remote control car now. When school resumed, I was in first grade. On the first day back, we all talked about what we got for Christmas. I guess remote control cars were all the rage because just about all the boys in class mentioned a remote control car as their favorite present. When second grade happened, my nerdiness was really starting to develop. Even at that age, I was a stickler for grammar and spelling. The big present that I wanted? Speak and spell. In fact, when I went to see Santa that year, there was a Christmas tree in whatever building it was where he was stationed, and that tree was loaded with toys, one of which was a speaking spell. And all I could think was, <laughs> Santa, you got no excuse. I see a speaking spell under your tree, so none of this I couldn't get any business. Christmas morning comes and jackpot. Once again, Santa comes through for me. Because I've always been observant about technology I want, though, I noticed it wasn't quite the exact same that I was used to. All the speaking spells I'd ever seen actually had pushable buttons on it. But the one that I got didn't have button, but it was a flat membrane keyboard. Knowing what I've learned about technology over the past years since, I guess a membrane keyboard lasts a lot longer than pushable buttons because it means there are a lot fewer moving parts to be broken. But either way, I loved that speaking spell. And once again, that year's big present was a severe battery muncher. My parents never did think of making sure there were extra batteries in the house. They managed to scrape together the required 4C batteries from the brown paper sack. I'm pretty sure it was a mixture of Everetti and Kroger cost-cutter batteries, uh, basically two of each. The speaking spell didn't last too long with those excuses for batteries, though. But man, did that thing make interesting sounds when the batteries started to die. My parents kind of got the message and bought a bunch of Alkaline C batteries a couple of days later, but even then they found that I was using the speak and spell constantly. Constantly! So even those Duracells didn't last that long because I was always, always playing with that speak and spell. My parents' solution? They bought the optional AC adapter. I think for my birthday later that year, they got me one of those modules you could plug in with more advanced words. 
and of course I mastered those bad boys too. In fact, I was still busy on that speaking spell well into the Christmas season the following year, but something happened to me in 1982 that had a pretty significant impact on my life that's still going strong to this day. I discovered the video game Pac-Man. All my friends and family ever heard about from me was Pac-Man. Anytime I was at the Kroger with my family, I'd stand by the Pac-Man machine up front and watch people play. Once in a blue moon, I was able to con a quarter out of mom or dad, usually dad, and I'd have a chance to play. When Stan's ice cream truck would come by in the summer, I'd run out and get a lemon-flavored Pac-Man on a stick. Every Saturday morning, I'd religiously watch the Pac-Man cartoon that aired on Channel 7. I'd draw Pac-Man mazes in my notebooks. As 1982 was starting to wrap up, I learned of a tabletop Pac-Man electronic game made by Coleco. It looked like a miniature version of the arcade cabinet. In fact, the way other people talked, I was under the impression that it basically was a tiny version of the arcade game, complete with the colorful maze, the cutscenes, the catchy sound effects. That, that was going to be the big present. The Coleco Pac-Man game was all I wanted for Christmas, nothing else. By the way, I should mention that um, I wanted it very badly, but I never actually saw it in action at that point. Anyway, as usual, we exchanged presents on Christmas Eve that year. I don't remember what I got, but although I was, well, let's just say, thinking I was too old for Santa, I knew I still had to open Christmas presents from Santa the next morning. So I went to bed in my Pac-Man pajamas, of course, excited at the prospect of that Coleco Pac-Man being under the tree. I don't remember everything that was in the Santa hall other than a garage door opener for my dad and a record album of some highlights from Animal Stories, a segment that Larry Lujak and his sidekick little snut-nosed Tommy Edwards would do on their WLS radio show, and that was addressed to my brother and me. There's a picture somewhere of us looking at the back cover and kind of getting excited about listening to it. Also for my brother and me was a big box. That was the last present left. It was too big to be that Coleco Pac-Man, so I was kind of puzzled. It's like, what is going on here? Santa, did Santa fail me? But Scott and I tore the wrapping off the box, and suddenly I nearly had to change my Pac-Man pajamas. The present was something that I never even hinted that I would ever want, because I always figured my parents would never allow it in my house. But there it was, the famous wood grain video game console. My brother and I, in shocked unison, yelled, Atari! I suddenly didn't care one iota about the Coleco Pac-Man game, because an Atari 2600 beats out any other possible present ever. Oh, and not only was it the Atari 2600, but there was also the Pac-Man game for the 2600, which my pair, <clears throat> Santa, bought separately and stuck inside the box. Needless to say, my brother and I hooked that thing up the very first opportunity, and we played some rounds of combat in Pac-Man before we had to wash up and get ready for relatives to come over. But whatever happened to that Coleco Pac-Man game? Well, Dad told me that he and Mom knew some friends and co-workers whose kids had the game, so they talked to him. They said, tell me about that uh, Pac-Man game. Where can I get it? Well, they told my parents, no, do not get that. Do yourselves a favor. That is a terrible, terrible thing. It makes all kinds of horrible, unbearable noises. Dad told me that they figured that Atari would be a much better investment. Well, given that I still love Atari 2600 and still have all the games that I had for it back then, I think Mom and Dad made a very wise decision. I still have the picture taken seconds after Scott and I unwrapped that present, and you better believe I'll be posting that in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Did I have big presents after that year? Sure, although nothing will top the Atari. But in 1983, there were two things that I really wanted. A boombox, or as my classmates and I would just call it, a box, and Qbert for the Atari 2600. Thankfully, I got both, once again from Santa, although I insisted that I was too old for Santa. There's another picture I need to share in the online bibliography. A picture of me holding the just-opened Qbert box with my dad's then-omnipresent cigarette sneaking into the picture. A friend of mine who saw that picture when I posted it on Facebook said that just that one picture tells you everything you need to know about the early 80s, with the shag carpet, the cigarette hanging out of somebody's mouth inside the house. But seriously, 1983, I was thrilled with how Christmas was turning out so far. I took a shower and got dressed, getting ready for the relatives again. While I was pulling my socks up, Dad walked into the bedroom and said there was one more present that he and Mom forgot to give me. 
He handed me the present, which was obviously a record album, and it was wrapped in either aluminum foil or silver wrapping paper, I don't remember for sure. I opened it. Michael Jackson's Thriller. I don't think I even asked for that, but my family knew that I loved Michael Jackson. I didn't think Christmas could possibly get better, but wow! Over the next two or three years, I played the hell out of that album. I still have it too, and amazingly, the vinyl is in pretty good shape and still sounds great. That's all I have to say about the big present, really. Have I gotten presents that thrilled me since? Absolutely. But I recall not too long ago, my mom asked me, don't you miss the Christmases when you were a little kid? She talked about the obvious thrill of opening those special gifts under the tree. Do I miss those times? Definitely not at all. They were exciting times for sure. But as I grew older, I understood that presents were small potatoes. Now that I think about it, small potatoes literally could be good Christmas presents. You can do a lot with potatoes, especially if you're as good as making mashed potatoes as my wife is. But there are far more important things. I learned to appreciate giving over receiving, taking the time off to chill and reflect what's truly important in life, and perhaps most importantly, taking that time to spend with loved ones. That, perhaps, is the true big present. It should come as no surprise that music was always an important part of Christmas for me. Not just Christmas music, but non-Christmas music as well, such as when I got Michael Jackson's Thriller album for Christmas. But then again, it seems that music is an important part of most people's Christmas. Back when I was a child, my mother would have some Christmas music in rotation on the Zenith Hi-Fi. Specifically, I remember she'd play Johnny Mathis' 1958 album Merry Christmas, Uh, although she had a mid-60s reissue that had an alternate cover picture. She'd also play Mario Lanza's Christmas Hymns and Carols album from 1963. In fact, that's the album that introduced me to We Three Kings. Much to my chagrin, Mom also played Barbara Streisand's 1967 A Christmas album during the season. I I don't know why, but I could never stand her voice. It's a smooth voice and everything. I just, I don't know, something about it just rubs me the wrong way on the inside. And her version of Jingle Bells, ugh! Oh, that drives me up the wall. I know what she was trying to do with that, but I don't know, it just didn't work for me. As for Dad, however, well, I don't really remember him playing Christmas music much, if at all until Alabama released their song Christmas in Dixie in 1982. Dad's been a country music fan for a long time. Oh, by the way, a little bit of country music controversy here. Skip Ewing's The Coast of Colorado? That's just Christmas in Dixie with different lyrics. Change my mind. Christmas in Dixie It's snowing in the pines Merry Christmas I never shared any of the same musical tastes my parents had, so I had my own Christmas music to listen to. I remember when I was a child, my parents gave me an album called either Merry Snoopy's Christmas or Snoopy's Merry Christmas. Uh, The placement of the words was kind of confusing. Side one consisted of the Royal Guardsmen's three main Snoopy songs, Snoopy vs. the Red Baron, Return of the Red Baron, and Snoopy's Christmas. Each song was preceded by an extended story of the goings-on behind enemy lines that led to the events of the songs. Side 2 was just a bunch of songs by the Royal Guardsmen. Honestly, the only tracks on the album that had anything to do with Christmas were Snoopy's Christmas on Side 1, and It Kinda Looks Like Christmas on Side 2. Particularly curious was that the album included the Royal Guardsmen's single Down Behind the Lines, but it didn't have the single's B-side Snoopy for President and it was supposed to be a Snoopy-themed album. Perhaps the most curious thing about the album, now that I look back, the album was clearly targeted toward children, mind you, but it included the song My Airplane. 
Hearing the song today, I noticed that the lyrics are loaded with double entendres that you wouldn't expect on a children's album. I can go up, we can go down, but the way we're going now, we won't get off the ground in my airplane. But you know what? They went right over my head as I played the album on the plastic Mickey Mouse record player I had. Speaking of Mickey Mouse, more Christmas listening I remember came from a three-record set on Disneyland Records that was advertised like crazy on TV. And like magic, it just appeared one day when I was four years old. It turns out my grandmother ordered it for me as an early Christmas present. One record in the set was Dickens' A Christmas Carol as performed by, as it says on the cover, the Walt Disney Players. Specifically, the players were Scrooge McDuck as Ebenezer Scrooge, Mickey Mouse as Bob Cratchit, Goofy as Jacob Marley. Uh, basically, if you've ever seen the animated cartoon Mickey's Christmas Carol, uh, that was actually in a double feature with the Black Cauldron, I remember, back in the 80s. <laughs> but if you've ever seen that, this A Christmas Carol album was almost word-for-word word the same dialogue from that cartoon, except that The Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come actually had a speaking part. The other two records were an album called Walt Disney Studios Presents Merry Christmas Songs, 29 All-Time Favorites. I don't remember how they managed to fit that on the label, but they did. Some of the songs were sung in Disney character voices, but a surprising majority of them were actually done choral style. In fact, I recently, and by recently I mean just as I was researching and typing up the script for this segment found out that one of the choirs on several of the tracks is the Mike Sam singers, who make an appearance on the Beatles' I Am the Walrus. And yeah, I had to sneak a Beatles reference in because I love the Beatles, and spoiler alert, there's going to be more later on. Haha. <laughs> but obviously, as I got older, my musical tastes changed as I was exposed to more Christmas music. Especially in the last 20 years or so, my Christmas rotation has been pretty solid. And I realized that there are five albums in particular that get spins on my uh, iPod, I guess. I mean, sure, I'd love to listen to these classics on vinyl, but it's hard to carry a turntable on a crowded mass transit train. So, yeah, what you just heard should have told you that, of course, I'm going to talk about my top five favorite Christmas albums. First, though, some honorable mentions. Albums that I wish to acknowledge and whose songs I enjoy, but... For whatever reason, I just can't stick them in my top five. And I'm going to warn you, it's going to start with a lecture about my favorite band. Did you know the Beatles actually released a Christmas album? Kinda. Every year, from 1963 through 1969, the Beatles would send out a flexi-disc containing holiday greetings to their official fan club members. The first two they did, 1963 and 1964, the messages were very impromptu, and at points they were kind of hilarious, actually. Wishing everyone happy Crimble and a Merry New Year, and especially all the ones who paid the subscription. Ja, das wird schön, und dem eben, ja, dem schon, ja, das wird wunderschön, boy. They were thanking their fans for a great year, recapping some of went down. The 1965 message was almost the same, except that it sounded like the Fab Four had also been partaking in some, uh, well, let's just say agriculture. Christmas Day. This year has turned out to be a big year for us. Christmas Day. One of our biggest years since we can remember. Christmas Day. And we can remember a lot of big years. For the 1966 and 1967 recordings, the Beatles recorded scripted and highly avant-garde Christmas skits. The boys arrive at BBC House. What do you want? We, we have been granted permission, oh wise one. <gasps> Their last two Christmas flexi-discs, from 1968 and 1969, of course, they featured each Beatle individually recording his holiday greeting. In a way, if you listen to the Christmas recordings in order, you can actually hear the story of the Beatles in action, going from young and energetic to artistic and experimental, all the way up through when the four seldom were in the same room together. Although the Beatles technically were already broken up by the end of 1969, their breakup wasn't publicly announced until April of 1970. For Christmas of 1970, the Beatles gave their fan club members one final Christmas gift, a full-size album compiling all of their previous Christmas messages. 
this was likely an especially welcome gift to American fans who, for various reasons, didn't get two of the recordings the first time around. The album itself is a highly sought-after collectible and has been counterfeited many times. And quite frankly, it had a pretty ugly album cover, if you ask me. The actual Christmas recordings themselves were reissued on 7-inch colored vinyl in a box set in 2017. If you're a major completist and want every Beatles Christmas recording you can get your hands on, numerous bootlegs contain all the Christmas recordings as well, plus an outtake of the 1964 message and the 1967 song Christmas Time is Here Again in full. Now, the song Christmas Time is Here Again is actually a six-minute recording of just one chorus repeated numerous times. It was meant to be cut up and spliced into the 1967 Christmas record in between parts of the skit, and so it was. A trimmed-down version of the song with short greetings from the Beatles interspersed was released on an EP on vinyl and CD in 1995 as part of the Beatles anthology campaign. Their first Christmas recording, called the Beatles Christmas Record, was available in a slightly edited form as an iTunes download not too long ago. And here's a fun fact for you. In the movie Yellow Submarine, the Beatles can be heard singing a little bit of George Harrison's Think for Yourself in one scene, in which they attempt to revive a friend who's been bonked by the apple bonkers from the Blue Meanies. That extract of Think for Yourself came from a vocal overdub session from November of 1965. The Beatles crew had a tape running for about 15 minutes during that session and called it Beatle Speech. The purpose of Beatle Speech was to get some raw material that could be inserted into the 1965 Christmas record, appropriately called the Beatles' third Christmas record. However, the powers that be determined that there wasn't anything usable from that tape. By such favor, okay, let's go. And he called and they bloody well come. Why? Yes, but oh, if you look in your Bible. So it was set aside for a possible later use, with a label on it saying something like, this tape will eventually be used. Several minutes of the Beatles speech tape has been bootlegged, though, so if you're that much of a completist that you want everything Beatles that has anything remotely to do with Christmas, you also need to get that think-for-yourself overdub session that's been going around the black market and trading circles for over 25 years. The Beatles also recorded Christmas greetings for their favorite pirate radio stations, but as far as I know, those recordings are long gone and therefore will never be heard again. But it is strange that arguably the most popular recording act in history never had a Christmas album except in very limited quantities. My next honorable mention will likely offend people, not because of the content, but because just the fact that it didn't make it to my top five. I speak of the October 1979 album A Christmas Together by John Denver and the Muppets. Yes, I know, their version of the 12 Days of Christmas is to die for. But that's the problem. There's not much else on the album to die for. And it's the very first song on the album. Why bother listening to the rest? They put all their eggs in one basket. I'm not a fan of the Electric Mayhem's version of Little St. Nick because it's, well, too clean and polished. I like the Electric Mayhem to be raw and rough, as they were in the Muppet movie. I absolutely love the song When the River Meets the Sea from Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, but the version on this album just doesn't cut it. The dated, tinkly electric piano in the beginning instantly kills the mood for me. So... So why is A Christmas Together getting a specifically honorable mention if I have mainly negative things to say about the album? Well, duh, it's the Muppets in their prime when Jim Henson was still with us. And of course, you cannot deny that the Muppets version of The Twelve Days of Christmas is Christmas Carol canon. Now I'm going to turn things more positive than negative, so I honorably mention Brian Setzer's Boogie Woogie Christmas from October 10th, 2002. Setzer's retro swing and rockabilly styles mesh wonderfully with Christmas music. I think my favorite track on the album is his remake of Santa Claus's Back in Town, first made popular by Elvis. The Man with the Bag, although it had been recorded previously by many artists, was certainly made definitive by Brian Setzer. Honestly, the only track on the album I don't like is the Nutcracker Suite, in which Setzer and his band perform various pieces from Tchaikovsky's ballet in swing style but it just doesn't work. The constantly changing tempos just doesn't work well for his style of music. 
Brian Setzer tried to capture that Christmas magic again on October 25th, 2005, with the release of Dig That Crazy Christmas. It's a very good album, surely, but not nearly as memorable as Boogie Woogie Christmas. Heck, I might as well talk about two of my favorite artists whom I've mentioned before on this podcast, The Monkees and Brian Wilson, who both have released Christmas albums. The Monkees just this past October 2018 released Christmas Party. I didn't know what to expect, but it's a pretty good listen. Honestly, it's mostly a Mickey Dolan solo album with special guest stars while everybody else, including the late Davy Jones, whose vocals I believe are from the 70s, but the instrumental backings are brand new. Peter Tork contributed a very folky version of Angels We Have Heard on High that definitely showcases his highly underrated talent, but unfortunately is overrun by autotune. Michael Nesmith's contributions were Mel Torme's classic The Christmas Song and Claude Thornhill's Snowfall, both recorded by Mike and the band that makes up the first national band Redux, including his sons Christian and Jonathan and Christian's... Alright, I don't know if Christian Nesmith is just dating or engaged to or is married to Cersei Link, but she's in the band and Ergo is also on those recordings. While the album is a good, solid, enjoyable listen, I can't put it in my top five because, well, there isn't a single track on which more than one monkey actually makes an appearance, the exception being the bonus tracks on the CD that Target sold. There was a 1986 remix of the 1976 song Christmas Is My Time of Year with all monkeys except Michael Nesmith and Rio Chiyu taken from their TV show, but unfortunately plays back too fast. Christmas Party is enjoyable, but not very cohesive. Then there's Brian Wilson's What I Really Want for Christmas, released October 18th, 2005. Don't get me wrong, I highly enjoy the album from start to finish, but I do have to give it a couple of dings to keep it out of my top five. For one thing, three of the songs are recycled from the Beach Boys 1964 Christmas album. Come on, Brian, you had to rehash oldies that you already recorded? You're a freaking genius! You could have written two new ones in a heartbeat, or at least chosen a couple of standards instead. Also, a lot of the production on this album seems kind of forced, in that rather than just having some fresh, organic Brian Wilson in the now production, many of the songs just shove in your face, This is the guy who did Pet Sounds! In fact, here are a couple of songs that sound like they came from Pet Sounds! I still like it, though. The title track instantly conjures up a relaxing, pleasantly snowy holiday season, and Brian's version of Deck the Halls is pretty exciting. Still, though, not enough to launch Brian in my top five, at least as a solo artist. One more honorable mention is the recently released soundtrack to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, the 1977 Jim Henson special that I love so much, partly because of the music that Paul Williams brought to the production. Every single song is one that I wish I could have written, from the opening of the bathing suit that your grandma Otter wore, to the deep purple-style Riverbottom Nightmare Band, to the ever-popular Barbecue, and the classic When the River Meets the Sea, perhaps one of the most beautiful songs on the planet. So, I love Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, I love the music from Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, but why is the soundtrack album not in my top five? Well. First of all, to be honest, I haven't actually heard the album itself yet. I was going to get it, but my wife hinted that I might want to see if Santa delivers a copy. <laughs> Jeez, I even need to plead with my wife to let me be old enough to not have to worry about Santa. Also, as many fans have pointed out, while the TV special is definitely Christmas-themed and the story wouldn't be possible without Christmas, the songs themselves have nothing to do with Christmas. They're very non-seasonal. So, technically, the soundtrack to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is not even a Christmas album, so it doesn't count. As for actual Christmas albums, well, let me get into my top five. Number five is the non-creatively titled Christmas album by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass from December 16th, 1968, so released just before Christmas and exactly 50 years ago from the date that I'm recording this segment. My wife and I have a thing, I guess, a category we discussed that we've named tacky. In terms of music, Herb Alpert is the king, uh, nay, emperor of tacky, and we mean this in the most loving way possible. Tacky music is music that, say, the grown-ups would enjoy at cocktail parties in the 60s. Tacky furniture? Well, watch the fifth season of Mad Men and dig Don Draper's home decor. Tacky graphics? 
well, just about any animated cartoon by the late, great Chuck Jones, especially the special effects. We love tackiness. When I first got together with Lisa, we wondered aloud if Herb Alpert ever released a Christmas album. Well, jackpot. We love the tacky trumpet throughout Winter Wonderland and the Spanish flea vibe of Jingle Bells. And of course, you can't not love a song called The Bell That Couldn't Jingle, one of the few tracks with sung lyrics on this album. Next up is my number four Christmas album by The Ventures. They named their Christmas album just as creatively as Herp Alpert did his, and it's called The Ventures Christmas Album, and it's from November 1965. For those of you not in the know, The Ventures were known for their rock and roll guitar instrumentals in the early 60s, with Walk Don't Run being perhaps their best known hit, and well, maybe uh, you could argue that the theme from Hawaii Five-O was just as equally known. But their Christmas album has the guitar instrumental sound that earned them their fans, but with some Christmas twists. Each of the tracks on the album borrows from popular songs at the time. For example, the opening track, Sleigh Ride, is done in the style of Adventure's own Walk Don't Run. Snowflakes, better known as What Child Is This, mimics She's Not There by the Zombies. Jingle Bell Rock pays tribute to Johnny Rivers' cover of Memphis, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer tips its hat to the Beatles' I Feel Fine. Lisa and I usually spin this album while we decorate the tree. Not only is the Ventures Christmas album a terrific listen to get you in the mood for the holiday, but it's also just plain fun. Third on my list is Ultimate Christmas by the Beach Boys from September 22, 1998. It's actually a reissue of the Beach Boys Christmas album, also a creative album title, from November 9, 1964, but it's padded with a lot of extra tracks. Their 1964 Christmas album had kind of two sounds to it. Side 1 featured songs done in the Beach Boys' standard rock and roll style, such as the classic Little Saint Nick and a catchy rocker called Merry Christmas Baby, with Side 2's songs being more orchestral, sometimes schmaltzy, including I'll Be Home for Christmas and We Three Kings, the latter of which contains perhaps the most lush, breathtaking vocal harmonies the Beach Boys ever recorded. Boy's Christmas album is as if Side 1 were for teenagers to listen to in their portable phonographs, while the grown-ups would listen to Side 2 on the hi-fi console in the living room. Ultimate Christmas also features Child of Winter, the Beach Boy's only recorded output of 1974, a Rush-released, mediocre Christmas song with a very strange spoken bridge from Brian Wilson. Christmas comes and the snow covers all. Trees are decorated with tinsel and pine. Mama's in the kitchen making In 1977, the Beach Boys recorded another Christmas album called Merry Christmas from the Beach Boys. Warner Brothers, their label at the time, deemed it unreleasable. And those who've heard the album and the various bootleg releases it's seen over the years will certainly agree with Warner Brothers. Well, Ultimate Christmas has some of the best track, well, more like least worst tracks from the unreleased 1977 Christmas album, such as Christmas Time Is Here Again, Al Jardine's remake of Buddy Holly's Peggy Sue, but with Christmas lyrics, and Morning Christmas, a heartfelt production from Dennis Wilson. Unfortunately, a few of the bad songs from the 1977 album somehow made it to Ultimate Christmas, such as Kona Christmas, which contains the lyrics, Ella Kaliki Maka is Merry Christmas in Hawaii Taka. Ah, the genius lyrics of Michael Edward Love. It's the bad tracks, though, that kept Ultimate Christmas from being my number two Christmas album, which actually ended up being a Christmas gift to you from Phil Less Records, also known as a Christmas gift to you from Phil Spector and Phil Spector's Christmas album. It's been released at various times under those three different titles. My friends, this will be the only time I ever give Phil Spector any kind of praise. I'm not even counting the second-degree murder conviction and his unpredictable and dangerous behavior in the decades leading up to that. I just plain do not like Phil Spector's production style at all. It's often been referred to as a wall of sound, but to me it's a wall of mud, a hot mess. My wife Lisa puts it best. Most of his productions sound like they were recorded in an air conditioner. 
Personally, I don't know if it's because the music was likely mixed and engineered to sound optimal on AM radios and cheap portable phonographs, teenagers' primary methods of listening to popular music back then, or if it might be simply that Spectre did a lot of reduction mixes which would reduce in a lot of generational sound loss. The release of Spectre's Christmas album coincided with the darkness of November 22, 1963, but despite that unfortunate timing, the album was still a pretty decent success upon its first release, peaking at number 13 on Billboard's Christmas album sales chart that year, charting even higher when it was reissued in 1972, reaching number 6 on the same chart. But getting back to how I detest Spectre's production style, somehow it works on this album. It might be that what I would normally call horrid sound quality on songs like Be My Baby and Da Do Run Run actually has a wintry feel to it, making it ideal for the subject of these songs. I don't know what it is, but it certainly does the job. The Ronettes are in classic form with Sleigh Ride and Frosty the Snowman, the latter demonstrating Veronica Bennett, uh, later known as Ronnie Spector, letting her New York accent come out to play. Frosty the Snowman Bob's socks and the blue jeans give the Bells of St. Mary's a nice reading. Uh, to be honest, I've never heard of them outside of this album, although apparently they had a couple of minor hits. Darlene Love is all over this album. As part of both Bob's socks and the blue jeans and the crystals, she's also given several solo spots, although I'm pretty sure that she's singing with the Ronettes on a few tracks, certainly Winter Wonderland, my favorite track on the album, with its layers of vocal harmony. Probably the shining moment for Darlene is Christmas, Baby Please Come Home, which arguably is her trademark song. Interesting fact, well, at least to me it's interesting, about Darlene Love. She went to Hawthorne High School, as did Let's Dance singer Chris Montez, George Harrison's widow Olivia, and four of the Beach Boys. I wonder if Brian Wilson ever crossed paths with her in high school. But if there's one single track you'll want to listen to on this album, it's Christmas, Baby Please Come Home. And now that I've talked about my second favorite Christmas album, it is time to move on to my number one favorite Christmas album, which hands down is the soundtrack from a Charlie Brown Christmas by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. And I feel bad that the trio doesn't get much credit for this. Uh, it might have to do with the fact that when the album was first out, it was only credited to Vince Guaraldi. But the other two members of the Vince Guaraldi Trio, in this album at least, were Jerry Grinelli on drums and Fred Marshall on double bass. But picking A Charlie Brown Christmas as my number one Christmas album was an absolute no-brainer. I was practically raised on Peanuts. I don't remember a day when Peanuts wasn't a part of my life. Every time a Peanuts special aired on Channel 2, I would sit down and plunk myself in front of the TV with my eyes practically glued to the screen. When I learned to read and realized that Peanuts was a comic strip, I would read those strips religiously, and sometimes it literally was religious. The music, though, it always stuck with me. My mom would occasionally buy me those 7-inch book and record packages when she was out shopping. For those of you unfamiliar with these records, they were just that, 7-inch records played at 33 and a third revolutions per minute, and they would usually have very condensed versions of movies and TV specials edited down to fit, well, on 7-inch uh, records that would play at 33 and a third RPM. They came with a booklet that had pictures from that condensed feature, and it also had the dialogue. The idea was you would read the book as you listened to the record, and there was a sound, usually chimes, that would let you know when it was time to turn the page. I'm pretty sure these things were pretty cheap because I had quite a collection, and my parents were never rich. And also they had to be cheap given that a lot of them had more surface noise than actual sound. Most of the book and record sets I had were Peanuts. I also had a few Disney, I had The Empire Strikes Back, and Popeye A Whale of a Tale. One year for Christmas, my parents got me the 12-inch book and record version of A Charlie Brown Christmas. The 12-inch format was a little bit more advanced than the 7-inch records in that you weren't alerted when to turn the page. You had to be smart enough yourself to know that you're supposed to turn the page when you run out of stuff to read. It also had pretty much all of the dialogue from the TV special. I played that book and record of A Charlie Brown Christmas incessantly for years. And what always stuck out for me big time? The music. I always wondered during those years why you couldn't get the music separately. Well, I was an ignorant little kid. I didn't know there was an actual soundtrack album available since 1965. I knew something had to exist because later I would hear Jonathan Brandmeier play some of the music in the background on his radio show on WLUP. 
It wasn't until 1990 when I finally found the soundtrack when I was on break at my first job at the Joliet Public Library. I would often spend my breaks browsing the records and tapes, and there it was. I took the album home and made a tape copy of it, and I listened to that tape a lot, regardless of the time of year. In fact, that's one of the great things about the album. So much of the soundtrack from A Charlie Brown Christmas is honestly non-seasonal. What child is this can be played any time of year because it's just green sleeves with different lyrics and there are no vocals on the recording so you don't hear the lyrics at all, so for all you know, it is green sleeves. Interestingly, most CD reissues of the album include an extra track that's actually called Green Sleeves, which is pretty much the same track as What Child Is This, but it's performed at a slightly slower tempo. Or as my notes say, Temple. Huh. Linus and Lucy, which many think of as the unofficial Peanuts theme song, has nothing to do with Christmas, and in fact it made its first appearance the previous year on the album Jazz Impressions of a Boy Named Charlie Brown, the soundtrack album to an unaired 1963 Peanuts special. Skating also has nothing to do with Christmas, and was also used in the 1969 movie A Boy Named Charlie Brown. Heck, you can even make the case for Christmas is Coming being a non-seasonal cut on the album because, well, the only thing that makes it a Christmas tune is its title. The penultimate track on the album is a short Beethoven piece, the ever-popular Für Elisa, a staple of piano lessons, nothing to do with Christmas. So yes, roughly half of the soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas can be justifiably played year-round. The story about how Vince Guaraldi became involved with Peanuts cartoons is that television producer Lee Mendelson heard the Vince Guaraldi trio's 1962 recording of Cast Your Fate to the Wind. He loved what he heard, and he reached out to Vince to make music for an upcoming Peanuts TV special, the aforementioned unaired documentary. When it came time to do a Charlie Brown Christmas, Guaraldi was commissioned again to do the soundtrack despite network executives' puzzlement about using jazz music in a children's television program. Well, obviously it worked, because Guaraldi provided the soundtracks to almost every Peanuts animated TV special and feature film until his death in 1976. Put this album in your holiday rotation, and it's instantly Christmas. And for those of you who get stressed during the holidays, I mean, it's instantly Christmas in a good way. For an extra treat, add Cast Your Fate to the Wind to your listening, available on Vince Guaraldi's 1962 album Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus. This year, when Lisa and I put up the Christmas tree, I put together a playlist that actually included Cast Your Fate to the Wind. Lisa said, this isn't a Christmas song, but it definitely works. We're obviously not the only ones who find that Cast Your Fate to the Wind works for Christmas because Rick Reynolds used the tune as his theme music for a few episodes of the Holiday Special podcast. I will link Rick's podcast in the online bibliography. You would not believe how hard it was to come up with a transition to end this Music for Schnooks segment, so I'm just going to give up and do this abrupt segue. I expect some people might have just skipped this segment because there are a lot of people out there who grumpily say, I don't like Christmas music. Now, personally, I think when they voice that opinion, they're just trying to be a buzzkill. I just think that if you celebrate Christmas, it's not so much that you hate Christmas music, you just haven't found the right Christmas music for yourself. But if non-seasonal music puts you in the proper mood, that's great. Personally, I find music, any music I enjoy, really takes the stress off a busy holiday season. And actually, some of my favorite Christmas memories involve music that has nothing to do with Christmas. But that's for a future installment of Music for Schnooks. You know... I did not intentionally make it so that my top five albums were all from the 60s. It just happened to be that way. And when I think about it, the 60s really were the primo decade for bringing good times at Christmas. Because what did you have? You had a Charlie Brown Christmas on TV, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on TV, and look at the great music that came out around that time. There's just something with how Christmas music was treated. It had a little bit of an extra flair that you just didn't see in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, and man, I guess maybe nowadays popular music that's done for Christmas now actually does sound kind of Christmassy, which is kind of refreshing to hear. But for a while it wasn't. But I'm not going to wax philosophical on that much longer because, hey, it's time to put an end to this particular chapter. And I thank you all again for listening. 
I told you I'd reiterate the contact information at the end of this episode, so here it is. My email address is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. My Twitter handle is schnookpodcast, as is my Instagram handle. The Facebook page is facebook.com slash schnookpodcast, or you can just do a search for autobiography of a schnook and it'll come up there. Google Plus um, is pretty much gone, so forget it. And um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, By the way, if there's any podcatcher that you like to use, but this podcast isn't showing up on it, please let me know and I will do what I can to make sure that it shows up on there. I can't make any promises. I'm just saying that I'll do what I can. As usual, I thank Lisa for her support, and I thank you all for your support by listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review at whatever podcast provider you use, be it iTunes or Stitcher, whatever, whatever. And also, please tell people about this podcast. Spread the word. Uh, Just in case somebody wants something that's eh, not your everyday podcast. Well, what's this podcast about? Oh, it's some guy talking about himself. Hmm. Sounds fascinating to me, so maybe it'll be fascinating to your friends, to your loved ones, to your whatever. And everybody listening, again, thank you. I will be talking to you again in 2019. Have a wonderful Christmas, Boxing Day, Kwanzaa, uh, Solstice, uh, Saturnalia. If you don't celebrate anything, then have a wonderful series of days, I guess. And remember, the good goes around, and let's especially keep it going around during this holiday season. Merry Christmas, my friends, and happy holidays. And here we go. Got got garage band. Do they call it garage band over in England? I don't know. But I call it garage band. Mouth noises. I hate mouth noises. And I hate when people go... News people do it all the time, too. They go between the stories. It drives me crazy. Ugh. Anyway. One more honorable mention is the recently released sound. Recently released sound. Recent. One more honorable mention is the recently released soundtrack to Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, the 19. The 1977 Jim Hensel. The 1977 Jim Hems. Sheep. (laughs) 